Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to Out of the Closet and Into the Pews. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about abortion as a religious liberty and freedom. Today to join me is Reverend Katie Zeh. Katie Zeh is the CEO of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. She is the author of Women Rise Up, Sacred Stories of Resistance for Today's Revolution, and the co-host of Kindred's podcast. Katie is also an ordained Baptist minister and is working on her second book about abortion, healing, and our collective liberation. Katie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about your story? How did you come to your faith, spirituality, or religion? And what faith-based communities did you grow up around? Yes, I grew up in Southeast Georgia uh, in a small town. And my family actually did not participate in any kind of organized religion when I was a small child. But I went with my maternal grandmother starting around the age of eight or nine to a United Methodist Church Uh, My grandmother was dying of cancer and decided to return to church. It's kind of a comforting thing for her. And I was completely fascinated, I think, because it was a brand new experience for me. Unlike most of my peers who grew up in church, for me, it was a brand new experience. And so I feel like I had this opportunity to kind of explore Christianity on my own without pressure. As I got a little bit older, though, I got really immersed in white conservative evangelical church culture that was what was around me at the time that was kind of the beginning or maybe the height of purity culture and true love weights and all that stuff. Um, So got pretty immersed in that in in high school and then went to college and started formally studying theology and and realized that there were lots of different ways to um, to be a faithful person to, you know, identify with Christianity that, that I had never seen before. I never knew, but there were lots of different kinds of ways to practice that faith. And so that sort of set me on a journey of deconstruction, reconstruction over several cycles, and um, eventually left the United Methodist Church that I've been part of to to join a progressive Baptist congregation in Raleigh, North Carolina called Pullen Memorial Baptist Church, and they ordained me to the work that I do now around advocating for reproductive freedom. You kind of mentioned reproductive freedom. I'm wondering if you can touch upon for our listeners what guides your activism. Sure. This was not something that I necessarily saw myself doing when I went to seminary. I went out of college straight into seminary. I attended Yale Divinity School thinking I might do a PhD or something like that. But I ended up getting involved in the work of the organization that I now run, which is the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. They had come to our campus and offered 
some trainings for us on how to accompany people either through a reproductive decision that they were making about a pregnancy or experiencing a reproductive loss. And at the time, I was just really hungry for anything that felt practical because so much of the classroom felt really intellectual. And I knew that I wanted to do something a little bit more hands-on. So I attended those trainings. I really fell in love with them and then ended up volunteering at an abortion clinic just down the street from seminary and had the experience of walking into an abortion clinic for the first time and being perceived by the protesters as a patient there to have an abortion. So really feeling that stigma and shame for the first time and also my own internalized stigma and shame about why did I care that someone might perceive me as the person in need of an abortion. But ended up in the clinic, um, eventually in the procedure room, actually accompanying people through their procedures. And it was a very profound and sacred experience to be there with people through such a vulnerable moment to be let in, to realize that just my presence itself could be very healing for people, um, that they weren't alone at that time. And I was also thinking about wow, what's going on within the clinic itself is so beautiful and feels like ministry to me. And the, the people of faith who are visible are outside screaming and yelling. And there's got to be a different way to do this for me to be someone who's pursuing a career ministry, to be someone who was supportive of, of what was going on within the clinic, of the staff, of the doctors, but also the patients. And so that kind of set me on this journey now where I'm, I'm doing this work full time, but it really was that experience of accompanying people through their abortions and, and feeling such a sacred, I can't even really describe it. It was just such a sacred experience that changed me. I talk about getting my call to ministry in the walls of an abortion clinic because that's what it was. Yeah, you mentioned um, the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. I'm wondering if you can mention a little bit about your work there, what you do, um, share that with our listeners. Yeah, so RCRC is an organization that lots of people are surprised to learn about because I think the dominant narrative is that all people of faith are opposed to abortion and reproductive rights more generally. That's never been true. It's definitely not true now. And if you learn a little bit about our history, which I'll share, it's really, it's really quite powerful. So in the, in the years prior to Roe versus Wade, which made abortion illegal in the United States, there were clergy in 38 states that formed these networks that would help people who needed abortions get access to safe abortion, even though it was illegal. It was called the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion. And they helped almost half a million people get access to safe abortions before Roe. And that was actually seen as a pretty noble thing that clergy were doing this work. It wasn't that controversial. It was brave, but it wasn't that controversial. It was seen as great public health work that clergy would be advocating for safe and legal abortion in the United States. And so out of that formed the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights, which then became the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. So we've been around since pre-Roe, uh, but really since the 70s, advocating, educating, and providing pastoral care to people as they make reproductive decisions. Um, we also support you know, doctors and their staffs as they help people you know, in those situations, um, but also publicly advocating for a whole range of reproductive health and rights issues, not just abortion, but sexuality education, access to contraception, and all the intersectional issues that impact people's ability to make decisions about their lives. You kind of mentioned this kind of assumption um, briefly that religious individuals are maybe often involved in a different realm as social justice activists. Um, oftentimes, people think of religion as only oppressive 
What do you make of that assumption and how does your work specifically, do you think that challenges that assumption in terms of like reproductive health and the work you do? I mean, I, I do understand that, especially I was born in 1983. And I think, you know, my experience of, of public religion is that of the religious right, you know, very, very powerful political machine. I mean, that has, that has changed quite significantly from that time, but still remains quite powerful. I think the role of, of Christian supremacy tied in with white supremacy and, you know, hyper-masculinity, all those things, like they're still very effective, clearly. So it's not surprising that people see the oppressive parts of, of Christianity in particular because of its conflation with political power. So it, it makes a lot of sense to me because that it's just so in our faces, especially, you know, in certain parts of the country, but honestly, its presence is, is everywhere. So I really get that. And I also understand the, um, the need to leave organized religion because of the trauma that so many of us experienced growing up in these oppressive religious communities um, and not really being able to find a way to reconcile those things. I've, I've been on that journey before, especially when I look at some of the more problematic biblical texts that are so violent, you know, that's a really, really hard place to be as you're examining your religious tradition saying, what do we do with the fact that there's all these instances of violence, you know, particularly against women, but not exclusively. So how do we reconcile that with, you know, our theological beliefs, maybe about freedom or compassion or God. I totally understand that. And I think that there's always a way to be creative theologically and have imagination about what's possible that we might not have seen yet in our existing faith communities. And sort of holding on to that hope of, I do believe that at, at its core, uh, Christianity in particular, but not exclusively so, is about liberation, is about compassion, is about accompanying one another through life that God is there through every single experience that we have, that we're never alone, and that ultimately it is about about justice and love. You know, I think we just get it so messed up when we start conflating it with power over one another rather than power with each other. Yeah. I'm wondering, how do you feel your faith has influenced your advocacy for reproductive rights or maybe um, vice versa? And where do you see the two align? And kind of do you see the work that you do as spiritual? Yeah. They've never really been in conflict for me, again, because of the context in which I felt this calling. It happened within the context of seminary for me when I was studying to be a minister and learning about pastoral care and all of those things. So for me, they've never really been separate because it's always been, they've always been aligned for me. I know for some people, there is this kind of cognitive dissonance that they have to work through, but that was just not, that was just not my experience because the two have always been, you know together for me of course like people want to ask me about that and tease it out or tell me it's not authentic because it's so surprising to them that a Baptist minister would advocate for reproductive freedom but for me it's always been deeply spiritual and one of the things that I like to talk about for me because I think sometimes stories in scripture can be really helpful in terms of illuminating the why for me it's the story uh, of the anonymous or unknown hemorrhaging woman in the Gospels, who has been bleeding for 12 years, has run out of options in terms of doctors helping her. They've also taken all of her money. And she learns that Jesus, the healer, is coming through her town. And she, on her own, says, thinks to herself, if I touch him, if I, if I touch his cloak, I will be made well. And so she does, even though that was not allowed culturally for her to be touching anybody, especially not a man given her, her bleeding. And in the moment that she touches the hem of his garment, she's healed. 
And Jesus actually feels that and then stops and asks who touches me. And she's brave enough to come to him and share her whole story. And for me, that is so emblematic of what people go through when they're making reproductive decisions that we know what we need within ourselves, even if it's not culturally allowed or if it's taboo. And yet we have the inner knowing of this is what I need to be healed. And in that, in that situation, Jesus, this divine healer, affirms that and says, your faith made you well, you know, but also her courage to share her story, I think is healing, not just for her life, but for the people around her who heard it. And so for me, when I think about the work that I do, it's really, it's, it's about healing. It's also about truth telling and creating that community where people are affirmed for speaking their whole truth, the truth that's within them, right, that might not be um, permissible, within the confines of the of of that society or that faith community like that doesn't matter it was really about what she knew within herself and again Jesus affirms that so for me that's a really central story that guides the work that I do um, each and every day yeah you kind of noted scripture my next question um, was what is some scripture that inspires your activism I'm wondering if there's another piece that you would want to share with our listeners yeah I think that one that not just specifically around reproductive freedom, but just kind of in general, that has been important for me to reframe. Cause I heard this scripture a lot growing up in an evangelical community. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. It's John 10, 10 from the gospel of John. And really thinking about what does abundant life mean? And that isn't just an afterlife thing. That's actually a here and now thing. And you know, I think especially when we talk about folks who are opposed to abortion, they have this political pro-life title that they give themselves. It's like, it's not just about existing. It's about, it's about thriving. It's about living lives free of oppression. It's about, you know, really being able to have lives of beauty and abundance. It's not just existing or just surviving. I think that like the divine intention is for all of us to have everything that we need to thrive. And so that, that verse from John 10, 10 has really guided my activism on a number of things, but just that we're, we're working towards a world where everyone can experience that kind of abundant life. Yeah. I spoke with a pastor a couple of um, weeks ago, and we talked a little bit about the Bible acting as a facilitator when it comes to conversations um, about reproductive health, LGBTQ plus rights. How do you see the Bible acting as a facilitator? Um, or just a conversation piece or how we can learn to fight oppression. Yeah, I love that. I think it provides a kind of common language for people of faith who might not be quite ready to share their own stories. I think there's something about sacred stories that are archetypal stories that have truth in them that goes beyond just the particular people involved. So I wrote my first book called Women Rise Up about 10 biblical women or 10 biblical stories that involved women. And I connected their stories to the stories of women and girls today who are struggling for gender equity, because a lot of the same things that were happening to these ancient women are things that are happening now. Like, for example, the story of Hagar in the book of Genesis um, is really a story of sexual slavery. And I talked about how that's very much like human trafficking now. And so I think that there are ways to reinterpret and reimagine the scriptures, especially the ones that are overlooked that we haven't given a lot of airtime to and really ask, how could we reimagine this story to make it relevant 
for today and really seeing the, the, the common threads from these ancient stories to today's stories. I think that's what makes them so powerful is that, yeah, there's a lot about them that's antiquated, but there are also some things that are very rich and deep and that connect, can help connect us back to the scriptures. And so I think for people of faith, especially who are doing activism work, to be able to connect their convictions to their sacred traditions and to their own lives can be a really powerful tool because I think, again, some folks have this cognitive dissonance where here's my activism over here, here's my faith over here, like don't necessarily know how to connect the two. And that's what I try to facilitate in my storytelling work and work that I do with faith communities is like helping them see the connecting points. Yeah, I want to take us on a little bit of a different direction. Earlier this month, you kind of spoke on Twitter about how the Texas abortion ban infringed on our constitutional right to religious liberty. Can you kind of parse that out for our listeners? Yes, I'd be happy to. I'm glad you asked that because I think that this is a, a point that is not made often enough or loudly enough. Um, and I would say that it shouldn't just be an argument that people of faith make. I think anybody who cares about our constitutional rights should be talking about this because what's happening with an abortion, an abortion ban at any time is going to infringe on the religious liberty of people for whom abortion is acceptable or even mandated. And I will, I'll take the example, and, and honestly, having a, a rabbi on here would be much better than having me on here. But for, for folks who are, um, who are Jewish, the ability to access reproductive health care, including abortion, is essential to their reproductive, to their religious freedom and their reproductive freedom, because it's actually mandated in certain situations. And so for, if you're a Jewish person living in Texas, and you are now no longer to access able to access abortion, you're actually not able to live into your faith fully. And I mean, you could go beyond that and say, you know, people like me for whom this is essential to my religious calling to accompany people through their, you know, abortion procedures or their reproductive journeys in general, to say that I could then be sued by a citizen for having helped someone get access to abortion is actually infringing upon my religious liberty because this is part, this is essential to my faith calling that I do this work. And I think it's just an argument that could be really powerful if we would make it a lot more publicly. And if we could get secular people who work in this space to see the connecting points, because there's a really strong argument to be made that access to reproductive health care is essential to everybody's protection of their religious liberty. Yeah. um, Dan Miller and Bradley Onishi note on their most recent weekly roundup of Straight White American Jesus that it seems that in some ways um, this argument of religious liberty and religious freedom for abortion kind of flips the evangelical argument almost on its head. Um, What do you think of that just in terms of the power of being able to kind of subvert an argument like that? And what do you think it would take for um, secular people to pay more attention to the argument that abortion bans are an infringement on religious freedom and religious liberty? Well, I mean, essentially what these bans do, it's, it's building a kind of theocracy that's based in the, the values of a very particular religious tradition that is not, that is not universal. It is, it is white conservative evangelicalism and Catholicism too, but that shouldn't be representative of everybody because we all have the ability in this country to practice our religion and to be free of religion, but also to enjoy religious pluralism. So that means like your faith might teach you that having an abortion is wrong, but my faith doesn't teach me that. And so if you're going to institute a law 
that's going to prevent me from accessing abortion care, then you've now imposed your particular religious viewpoint, theological viewpoint on me. And there is no theological consensus on anything about personhood. When life begins, there is such a full spectrum of opinion and also mystery about that. So for there to be one particular viewpoint that is pushed through and legislated over and against any other religious tradition, especially minority religious traditions, this is an imposition on our religious liberty. So I think it just needs, we haven't taken enough advantage of this. If you remember the Hobby Lobby case, this is about employer mandated uh, contraception. That would have been a great time to make this argument in litigation because there is an equal argument to be made that giving access to contraception is is in alignment with, with religious freedom, right? So I think it's just been, I think that that talking point or concept has been weaponized by white conservative evangelical Christians, and we could absolutely use it on the progressive side. I don't know why we haven't. I'm not, a, I'm not an attorney, but this has been one of my my points that I try to make every time I talk about this is we really are doing ourselves a disservice. I think it's actually a very easy argument to be made in the courts. And I hope that folks will will think about it and start talking about it because it really does impact us. And it's not just going to be around reproductive freedom. This is the lowest hanging fruit. I'm sure you've brought on other guests talking about, you know, gay couples who want to adopt, right? Like there's religious freedom arguments being made to discriminate against all kinds of marginalized communities. And we need to nip this in the bud or we're going to lose a lot more. I'm wondering kind of just winding down, you um, mentioned your book, your upcoming book, A Complicated Choice. I'm wondering, can you tell a little bit to our listeners about this work? What kind of inspired it? Yes, this is my second book. Um, It's called A Complicated Choice. And the subtitle is Making Space for Grief and Healing in the Pro-Choice Movement. And it's a storytelling book. So I interviewed, I think, 19 people for this book. I ended up with 17 stories of the kind of complex journeys that people have in accessing abortion, making the decision to have an abortion, processing their abortion experience, and then integrating it into their full lives. And I wanted to write this book because I felt like even within the pro-choice spaces that I move, there's a lot of internalized judgment and stigma about people who have abortions and why. There wasn't a lot of space for people to show up and share their full experiences, which often include things like grief, sadness, um, you know, wondering what could have been. And I think it's just so essential as we're talking about affirming our full humanity that we give people space to share their full stories and for them to not feel like that's going to be weaponized against them. I think that's so often why those nuanced stories, it's, it's hard enough to tell a, an abortion story publicly, period. But then to share something that's so deeply vulnerable that it can be weaponized against you and against access to abortion for other people keeps so many people quiet. So I felt like I could do, as someone who kind of stands in between those two things, share some of those stories and make the argument that what we need to be doing is responding to people's stories with compassion and not judgment because everybody's experience is different and that it's a deeply human thing to have a complex emotional response to making a decision of any kind, including the decision to have an abortion, and that doesn't make it wrong. And I wanted to write that because I wanted to disrupt this narrative that I see in so much of the anti-choice faith-based work that if you have a feeling of sadness, it's because you committed a sin. And I think that is just so manipulative and wrong and really just affirming people for having whatever emotional experience they have. It doesn't mean that they made the wrong decision. It just means they made a deeply human one. And so that's why I wanted to write the book. And I hope it'll 
kind of help us transform the ways that we talk about abortion in our faith communities in particular, and recognizing that it's not just the point of decision-making that's important or point of access. It's that whole process of, of making sense of it after the fact and making sure that people have space to share those full stories. Cause I think we're all healed in the telling of those stories, just like the hemorrhaging woman who told her whole story. I think we need to be, we need to be in that community to hear those whole stories so that we can be healed too. Yeah. My last question for you, kind of thinking about all the complex things you've talked about, what gives you hope in this moment? You know, I, I think hope is a stubborn thing. <laughs> I think it's a refusal not to allow. It's very intentional, I think, the kind of piling on that's happening right now. And there are definitely days when I don't want to get out of bed. Um, I'll be honest, that was definitely one of those days today. But I think there's like this kind of a stubbornness in holding that vision of what's possible, you know, and I think having these kinds of conversations with people like you, there are little glimmers of of hope here and there. We just kind of have to hang on to them and like find each other. So it's really connection for me that gives me hope. I know that I'm not alone in this work. I know that there are a community of people listening to this um, who are involved in this work. So it's really about, it's, it's remembering that this is way, way bigger than me and that I'm not alone in the work. Reverend Katie Zeth, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.